0: And what we'll be talking about tonight are two writers who, again, are the height in both prose and poetry. In terms of poetry, we'll be talking about George Herbert. And in terms of religious prose, we'll be talking about Thomas Traherne. And when I was first introduced to Thomas Traherne, I was told that I might find this the greatest religious prose of the 17th century. But I don't think that's true anymore. I just think it's the greatest religious prose that we have in English. (laughs) And I hope tonight, after tonight, you might want to do a little exploring yourself. But the interesting thing is mystery stories. I, I don't know if you like mystery stories, but one of the most fascinating things, if I could go through this mystery story, some of you would know it already. In the year, 1897, 1898, there was a very bad winter. And a bookseller called William Brooke was going through a basket here in London of old books and old manuscripts, and he came across two of them. This is 1897, 1898, cold winter. And he took these two manuscripts, and I think I have it down here. He bought them for several pence. And then he sold them later on to a collector. And that collector saw that they were probably by a 17th century writer. And he thought that that writer might have been Vaughan, one of the great religious poets of the 17th century. And so that collector, was going to publish them under the name of Vaughan, and he died. And the manuscripts ended up with a fellow called Bertram Daubebel. And he was able to identify that the manuscripts were actually by the 17th century writer Thomas Terherne. And so in 1907, some of Treherne's writings that hadn't been seen for hundreds of years were published. Sixty years later, a Birmingham bookseller found another manuscript in very, very poor condition. He didn't know who wrote it, And he was finally able to identify, he found it in 1964, uh, that it was by Thomas Trehearne. And this fragment that was then published in 1997. We're getting very contemporary here, aren't we? Now, in the mid-60s, in Lancashire, I love this, Mr. and Mrs. Wookiee saw a pile of burning rubbish. And on the pile of burning rubbish, they saw burning some old manuscripts. And they got the manuscripts out and put the fire out. And they put them upstairs. And then they moved to Canada, I think Toronto. And they put these up in the attic. Some students, I think from the university, were helping them one day, and they came across the manuscripts. And, of course, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wolke just know that they were on a rubbish heap that was burning in Lancashire a long time, many, many years before. And the students asked if they could take them to their tutor at the university, I think University of Toronto, which they did, and they were identified as Thomas Trehearne. That fire that they had been rescued from was in the 60s, and they were identified in Toronto in 1981 as being by Thomas Trehearne. In 1997, a woman was working in the Folger Library in Washington, DC, which is the greatest library of Shakespearean manuscripts and of literature at the same period. And she found 1,800 lines, <coughs> and she was able to identify them as Thomas Trehearne. What line was it? Folger. It's in Washington, D.C. It's the greatest Shakespearean library in the world. And Mr. Folger gave it to Dartmouth College, but it's in Washington, D.C. In that same year, in 1997, the late Jeremy Mead, who was a fellow of Trinity College at Cambridge, loved manuscripts and hated the cold and the wet and the rain. And he was in London and it was raining very badly. So he went into Lambeth Palace Library and he asked to look at a box of old manuscripts that hadn't been identified. And in 1997, he discovered manuscripts we'd never seen by Thomas Traherne. There are still more to be found somewhere. The irony is that Thomas Traherne. Who's going to die in uh, sixteen sixteen? Uh, 16 oh, oh. Toward the end of the seventeenth century. Circa 17th century, century. because this other story is just so fascinating, I wanted to get those dates, now we get to the important one; don't have it. He's going to die in the late 17th century and he's not really going to come to light till the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century. And now we're only having access really to his papers. Were there books when he died? Were there uh, some books? There were two books that he had written on theological subjects that had been published in the 17th century. And because of phrases in those books that made no splash at the time or later on, people were able to identify later on what were Traherne's papers. And one of the most phenomenal things is that he writes both in poetry and in prose. And we only have so much time tonight. I'd like to concentrate on the prose. What he's able to do is to talk about his religious experience in 17th century prose, which I think is still available to everyone in this room. Mm -hmm. You don't need a translation. Yes. I'm sorry, did you have a question? Mm -hmm. Don't worry, worry, I didn't have an answer either. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the marvelous thing about this is that you start thinking of people like Emily Dickinson, or you start thinking of people like Jared Manley Hopkins, or in the long run, you start looking at people like the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, or Dame Julian of Norwich, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing and Dame Julian of Norwich really had their audience 700 years after they wrote. Mm-hmm. And it's phenomenal because Treherne is a very, very special person. Now, C.S. Lewis had problems with Treherne, Because C.S. Lewis and a lot of Christians have said, there's not enough negativity in him for being a Christian. <laughs> One of the things that you all want to do personally, and I think I've mentioned this when we were talking about the cloud of unknowing, is to go back and look at what ideas you absorbed very early on about the effects, effects of original sin. Everybody in this room has ideas about your belief about the effects of original sin. Some of us will say, you leave people alone and there's a natural tendency to evil. Others will say, you leave people alone and there's a natural tendency to good. I really don't have the answer, and theologians in the Christian Church, both East and West, have been debating it for 2,000 years. But we all have ideas about the effects of original sin. If we would take one extreme Calvin, Luther, we would find that there's really an inclination to do the wrong thing, unless you correct corrected. If we move to a person like Trehearne or Aquinas, the natural, notice the word, the natural propensity seems to go to the good. Now the reason I say this is that depending upon our ideas, personally and collectively, of the effects of original sin, we are going to construct a school system we are going to construct ways of raising children. We are going to construct a prison system and the criminal system based upon our ideas of the effects of original sin. Does that make sense? And I'm not trying to argue any specific position tonight. But I think it's important for all of us to go back and find out what are the ideas that we imbibed very early about a tendency to do good or a tendency to do evil. Very interesting, right where I live, um, I look across the roadway to uh, Bishop Christopher, uh, the bishop's school there. Uh, Christopher Wordsworth named after him. And there was a Nobel Prize winner there who was the English master for a long time, William Golding. And you know, when we see those lovely little choir boys, and now choir girls, in their crocodile go across the close, you know, oh, aren't they cute? Ah, but Golding said, ah, you put them on an island. <laughs> you take away the prefix and the rules and you see what you've got. Now, one of the important things is to look at the fact of what our ideas are, again, about the effect of original sin. Because a lot of people do have problems with Traherne because he's very positive about human nature. And I'd like to suggest that if you do a lot of reading of Christian writers, that might not be as common as you would hope. And you'll also find certain, and for a long time uh, and still, some criticism of Traherne because he doesn't emphasize the evil in the world enough some people believe. Now it's interesting because Treherne lived in a time of tremendous civil and religious disorder. When he was born at the age, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, when he was born at the age of six, <laughs> it's a miracle. Better than the immaculate conception. <laughs> yes. Uh, when he was born, six years later, the Civil War started. He lived in Hereford. Both parents died, and so he was raised by an uncle. He and his brother was ra- were raised by an uncle. Hereford was deeply involved in the Civil War between the Puritans and the Royalists. And Hereford, as a city, actually changed hands three times during the war. And I don't know if anybody saw a television program, I think it was on Channel 4, about the Civil War in the 17th century. It was about four years ago. The 17th century was one of the worst centuries that we've ever gone through. It, it was a bad one, both here and on the continent. And the religious wars were really very terrible. And families, of course, were ripped apart. And remember that as he is growing up, going most probably to the grammar school in Hereford, we don't know, but we think because of his learning, there is no Church of England. There is no common prayer. There is no Archbishop of Canterbury. There are no bishops of the Church of England. They've been replaced by the ministers within the Congregationalist Presbyterian tradition. So we don't have ordinations in the Church of England. And uh, one of the evenings, it might be interesting if we talk about this, because if we look at Isaac Walton and we look at Thomas to and we look at Jeremy Taylor, we find when the Church of England was dispossessed, when it ceased to exist in a legal sense, when it was a crime to celebrate the Eucharist according to the Book of Common Prayer, was a phenomenal flowering of spirituality within the Anglican tradition. So the next time things are bad in your own religious situation, you might remember that just as in the 14th century, when the religious, the cultural, the civic world was in tremendous turmoil, there was a phenomenal flowering of mystical prayer. George Herbert is going to... Uh, excuse me. Uh, Thomas T. Hearn is to, growing up in a completely Puritan world, and he's going at the age of 17, to Oxford, and he'll go into Bresnos. And Bresnos, at the time, is a very Puritan college. He's going to go back, after he's received his BA, to a little village four miles north of Hereford. And he's going to be appointed the what you and I term, in our later language, the Free Church Minister. But we get 1660, the restoration of Charles II, the restoration of the Church of England, and we have George Herbert then almost immediately putting himself up for ordination and being ordained within the Church of England. But interestingly enough, he chose to go back to a little tiny parish, maybe with 40 people in it, half of them extremely poor, on what you and I would now call a very low salary. And he said how blessed he was, because if he had chosen another position in the church, there wouldn't be so much time to think, and to pray, and to minister to his people. Later on, he is going to receive the possibility of a chaplaincy to a member of the court of Charles II. He is going to take that up and die within just a few years. He's going to die at the age of 38. Now, the interesting thing is that he is an extraordinarily well-educated person. I don't mean that in the sense of Ph.D. and all that sort of thing. He's going to be a very, very well-read person. And one of the extraordinary things that we have found in all of his papers is a particular notebook. And in that notebook, he's going to write out verbatim writings from the Renaissance in Florence in the 15th century. And what he's going to do is to move into a tradition that had been lost during the Middle Ages, and it's what we call the Neoplatonic tradition, or the revival of Plato's thought in the Western world. Do you mind if we take a detour for a moment? Western theology, spirituality, writing, is going to be deeply influenced at the time of the rise of the university by the rediscovery of the ideas of Aristotle. And those ideas are going to come into the West through Thomas Aquinas, who gets them directly from the Muslim world. The Islamic world had preserved the thought of Aristotle when the Christian West had lost it until the 13th century. And the thought of Aristotle passed on through Latin is going to be the primary theology, certainly, of the Western Christian Church. In the 15th century, Constantinople, as it was then, is threatened by the Turks, is threatened by the conquering Muslims they realize that they'll only be able to defend Constantinople from Islam if they have military help from the Christian West. And so what happens is that the emperor, the the patriarch, all of their great theologians and thinkers come to the West to hold an ecumenical council with the Western Latin Church that had been separated from them for hundreds of years. The council is being held at Ferrara. But, Sorry, where? Ferrara. In Italy. But, oh, now we get down to the ground. Councils cost money. And they ran out of money. The de Medicis in Florence said, or oh, maybe I should ask, I should be today after all the news, I was going to say, we'll bankroll the council. <laughs> I, I should use other language. Um, we will subsidize this ecumenical council. And so all of these Greeks who had come to Ferrara come down into Florence. And this is the time of Michelangelo, of Botticelli, of Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, and this is when the de' Medicis are the patrons of learning. And what happens is this wonderful reawakening of a certain Neoplatonic strain of thought, because the Western theologians got up and spoke about Aristotle and Latin the Eastern Orthodox theologians got up and spoke about Plato in Greek. The Westerners didn't understand them. And the Greeks then started to teach the Westerners Greek. And the Domeniches took the son of their private physician and gave him the task of translating the entire corpus of Plato into Latin. And that son of the physician of the de Medicis was named Marcello Ficino. And what we have is the fact of Plato coming into the West, having been totally lost except for one of his dialogues at Timaeus during the Middle Ages. And we have the idea of beauty as being one of the signs of the divine. You've all heard the statement, I'm certain, God is truth, beauty, and goodness. Truth how much time is, have we as Christians given to dogma, to creeds, to theology? Well, we could say enough. Goodness, how much time has we given to moral questions? Beauty, how much energy in the Christian West have we given to God as Beauty. And we find that the people who were just before Ficino, Petrarch and Dante, are now talking about perceiving the divine through artists. And as artists as being the theologians. And they actually came up with a term called poetic theology in that God as the beautiful is accessible as God as the truthful and God as the good. If you'd like to look at this restated in our particular lifetime, you might want to read Iris Murdoch, because this is the tradition that Iris Murdoch came from. Well, one of the things that people forget when talking about the Christian Renaissance in the 15th century, 16th century, they talk about the architecture, they talk about the painters, they talk about the sculptors, but they forget that it all comes out of a philosophical and theological system. Because Botticelli, Michelangelo, Raphael are going to be sitting in the back garden Uh, not Raphael, but the other two, sitting in the back garden of the Domenici's while the theologians and the philosophers are talking about this new Platonic theology. And they're rediscovering what the philosophical experience was of the Greek and the Roman world. And they now are taking to themselves the name philosopher that the Romans had. Now, I don't know what your idea of philosopher is, but for the ancient Romans and Greeks and for the Renaissance, the philosopher was the doctor of the soul. And with Ficino's translation of Plato and Neoplatonic thought, and we'll go into this Hermetic thought, into the Latin, we now have accessible a whole new body of thought in the west. Is that hermetic or hermenic thought? It's both. At least I know that one. (laughs) It's both. Now the interesting thing here, anybody ever been to Siena Cathedral? You know, when you walk into Siena Cathedral, on the ground, you have a figure called Hermes Trismegistus. In the Neoplatonic tradition, it was thought that God had two elements of exposing himself. One was through revelation given to the Hebraic people, in what you and I would call the Old Testament, that comes to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The second was a philosophical tradition that comes from the Zoroastrians, the Egyptians, to the Greeks, to Plato, and comes to its fullness in Christ. Therefore, at the Renaissance, they saw reason and revelation as being complementary. Now the interesting thing about all of this is that this thought is going to be in the private notebooks of Thomas Traherne. Therefore, Thomas Traherne is going to be fascinated with science. And He's going to be fascinated with the Anglican tradition. He's going to be reading George Herbert, the Book of Common Prayer, the Authorized Version. He's going to be reading Aquinas. He's going to be reading Aristotle. And he's going to be reading the whole Neoplatonic tradition. And what happens, of course, is the fact that those of you who know Neoplatonic, oh, come in, come in. Yes, join the party. Neoplatonic thought know that for Plato, And I think we might have mentioned this, I don't know, at our last meeting that we had. All learning is remembering. If you think about that thought, Plato, through the Platonic dialogue with Socrates, is going to bring the little boy, Mino, into the center of the circle. And going to find out the nature of mathematics from the little boy? Did the Christians of the Renaissance love that? What did they compare that to? Jesus, 12 years of age, teaching in the temple. They're going to look at the death of Socrates and that one of the most famous sections in all of Western literature is that great dialogue at the end of the life of Socrates as he dies, and they're going to compare it to the death of Jesus. If you'd like to read the Renaissance ideas of the Neoplatonic tradition and how they reinterpreted the Christian message, George Steiner has some wonderful essays on this particular question. Now, the fascinating thing is that all of this goes into the thinking of George Herbert. Ah, thank you. Of Thomas Teherne. (laughs) We don't have time tonight... But simultaneously, all of this thinking from Florence goes to Cambridge, to Emmanuel College, to a group that we call the Cambridge Platonists, who were in contact with Descartes on the continent, who welcomed the new coming of science, and who saw that as part of the Whole Christian Renaissance that they saw coming together, and they're called the Cambridge Platonists. Well, the sort of The latter seventeenth century. We should get something a little more specific for you next week. <laughs> the latter part of the seventeenth century. Now, yes. Why did it take so long? To, like, because Cicino was born in what, fourteen eighty-five, something like that. So. It takes... Excellent. The great person who brought Ficino's thought back to England is going to be Dean Collett, the Dean of St. Paul's. Dean Collett is going to go to Florence and spend two years there. He's going to be so impressed by the Italian Renaissance in terms of a rejuvenation of the Christian church and the Christian education of the young, that Dean Collett is going to come back and found St. Paul's Boys' School on the lines of Renaissance humanism from Florence. And can you imagine this? This is early 16th century. Dean Collett is going to have married masters teaching, not priests. And Dean Collett is going to see the study of the Greek and Roman classics as the way to rejuvenate Christianity. And he's going to found the curriculum of what had been the classical curriculum The humanistic curriculum in the English public school system that went into the English grammar school system that people like Shakespeare and Thomas de would have participated in, that lasted all the way to the end of the 19th century when we have the coming of science. And there's a wonderful uh, professor, he was at Oxford and then he went to University of Michigan, G.B. Harrison, great Shakespearean scholar, who said that the classics were killed when the grammarians took over from those people who taught the classics as a literature. And so we find this tradition going all the way, and Shakespeare's going to come out of that tradition in terms of his grammar school education, as Thomas Traherne is in his education at the grammar school in Hereford. Thomas More is going to be part of this and bring this thought into England. The man whose key, though, is going to be the chancellor of Cambridge University... And the Bishop of Rochester, who is imbued with this thought, and his name is going to be John Fisher. But you don't do anything unless it's bankrolled by somebody. And the whole thing is going to be bankrolled by a woman. And this woman, if it had all worked out, would have been the most famous person in Britain because she would have brought the Renaissance here. She bankrolled Erasmus to come to Britain. The, um, John Fisher is not only the Bishop of Rochester, the Chancellor of Cambridge University, he's also the president of Queen's College, Cambridge, and so he's going to bring Erasmus, who's going to be the first person to teach Greek, in an English university. but I'm sorry, could you give me another date for this? Is that before or after the... I don't know the date of... This is going to be uh, the early 16th century. They're both martyred, aren't they? they? That's right. The difficulty is that we have Henry VIII, the Reformation, coming in, and one of the reasons <laughs> uh, that we don't find a lot of this coming as it would have we're doing other things in England. Does that make sense? Who was the Margaret, oh, didn't I? Oh my Mar- God <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort. So Henry the Eighth's grandmother. Yeah. Henry VIII's grandmother. Um, and Margaret Beaufort is one of the greatest. Supporters of theology and spirituality and learning in all of the English history. And it's Margaret Beaufort who founded two colleges at Cambridge and who brought Erasmus. And the interesting thing is that Margaret Beaufort was married at the age of 12. Uh, She gave birth to Henry VII at the age of 13. There were terrible gynecological difficulties, so she could never bear another child. But the interesting thing is that the relationship between Margaret Beaufort and her son Henry VII was not so much mother-son as much as brother-sister. There was only 12, 13 years between them. And it's one of the fascinating stories of this woman supporting this. And as you know, the great chair of theology in Oxford, the great chair of theology in Cambridge, I think it was the one that Rowan Williams used to have, still in both universities, is the Lady Margaret Beaufort chair that she endowed. Now, I hope you don't find this boring, but one of the unbelievable things that this comes into Thomas T. Now, if you'd like to get a feel of Neoplatonism, I didn't bring it along tonight because obviously we wouldn't have time, you want to go back and read Wordsworth. From heaven to 11, we come into this world at birth trailing clouds of glory. Childhood, for Wordsworth, is when we're closest to the divine. The statement by Wordsworth, the child is the father of the man. Now, I have no idea, and I've not been able to find out if Wordsworth got involved in Neoplatonism. But he's certainly a Neoplatonic thinker. Because if all learning is remembering, can you see the university system, the school system, the ecclesiastical system, the parental system that we would be living with? And you know, um, one of the things in training of clergy, one always sees, you, know, the Ordinand, he or she learns, they become strong, they become theologians, they go out, they have their theology, they fill the pews, they are great, then the nervous breakdown. And they go to the superintendent, or the chair of the district, or the bishop. And the bishop says, oh, I've got a psychologist here. We said, uh, what was her name last week? Mm-hmm. Julianne McLean. And we send him over here. Uh, we get a cut rate for a clergy. And so what happens is this, this clergy person, who's been so well educated as a theologian, thinking all the time, goes to the analyst. And the analyst says, let's go back to childhood. <laughs> Let's go to the dreams. Let's look at images and symbols. And, of course, one of the fascinating things that the Neoplatonic tradition brought in was that whole element of beauty and the divine. Now, it's been taking a long time, hasn't it, to get to Thomas Traherne? Well, could I read just a little by Thomas Traherne? And I don't think I have to make any comments. I think he's going to speak for himself. His prose works are called A Centuries of Meditations because he had a hundred of these meditations. Here we go. Will you see the infancy of this sublime and celestial greatness? I was a stranger, which at my entrance into the world was saluted and surrounded by innumerable joys. My knowledge was divine. I was entertained like an angel with the works of God in their splendor and glory. Heaven and earth did sing my Creator's praises and could not make more melody to Adam than to me certainly Adam in paradise had not more sweet and curious apprehensions of the world than I all appeared new and strange at first inexpressibly rare and delightful and beautiful all things were spotless and pure and glorious the corn was orient, an immortal wheat, which never should be reap, nor was ever sown. I thought it had stood from everlasting to everlasting. The green trees, when I saw them first, transported and ravished me. Their sweetness and their unusual beauty made my heart to leap, and almost mad with ecstasy. They were such strange and wondrous things. Oh, what venerable creatures did the aged seem, immortal cherubims, and the young men glittering and sparkling angels, and maids, seraphic pieces of life and beauty. I knew not that they were born or should die but all things abided eternally. I knew not that there were sins or complaints or laws. I dreamed not of poverties, contentions or vices. All tears and quarrels were hidden from my eyes. I saw all In the peace of Eden, everything was at rest, free and immortal. You never enjoy the world aright, Till you see how a sand exhibiteth the wisdom and power of God, And prize in everything, the service which they do to you by manifesting his glory and goodness to your soul far more than the visible beauty on their surface or the material surfaces they can do to your body. Wine by its moisture quencheth my thirst, whether I consider it or no but to see it flowing from his love who gave it unto man quenches the thirst even of holy angels. To consider it is to drink it spiritually. To rejoice in its diffusion is to be of a public mind and to take pleasure in all the benefits it doth to all that is heavenly. For so they do in heaven, To do so is to be divine and good and to imitate our infinite and eternal Father. Now, if you don't put this down, uh, don't write this down. Meister Eckhart said that he thought there was a part of the soul that didn't fall at the time of Adam. And one of the things that one does by the contemplative life is to try to get back to that. The contemplation of eternity maketh the soul immortal whose glory it is that it can see before and after its existence into endless spaces. Its sights is its presence. And therefore is the presence of the understanding endless, because its sight is so. Oh, what glorious creatures should we be! Could we be present in spirit with all eternity? How wise would we esteem this presence of the understanding to be more real than that of our bodies? Now, he's coming from the tradition that says, you've got to look at physical beauty, because physical beauty leads you on to spiritual beauty. Therefore, the cultivation of beauty and the arts is the path to the divine. And one of the things that comes here, of course, is always that return to childhood. And um, I keep thinking of the psychological maxim uh, that the adult is the person who can bring back the child whom the adolescent had to banish. And if one looks at it like that, then I think what... To Hern might be saying is that the adult Christian goes back to the Eden that he or she had to leave. And one of the things about Hearn is that he's in that whole Neoplatonic tradition that the beauty in the physical leads, inevitably, to the beauty in the divine. Uh, If you have any questions, um, I hope somebody could answer them. Uh, I just wondered which, is it the centuries of meditation that had been published? Yes, yes. If you would like to start out with Thomas to Uh, Canon Alchin has written some very good pamphlets on it. Uh, but Denise Ing is the wife of the Bishop of Huntington, who's written some very good things on sacred space. And she's bringing out a book on Treherne, And this book is good simply because it's him. And she's edited a great deal of his writings. Yes, I-N-G-E, Denise Ing, and there's, uh, I, I, I do like this, um, the golden age of spiritual writing, and if you like, I'll just leave it out where we are at soup. Uh, there's a fellow in the Diocese of Winchester called David Scott, and uh, he's the editor of this series, and in his book he has a section on uh, Thomas de also. Uh, this is called Sacred Tongues, and I'll put it out if anybody would like to look at it. And you can all phone Serum College Bookstore if you like. <laughs> or there's a very nice bookstore here with the Diocese of London, too. <laughs> now, um, w- what I hope to do, I did tonight was to give a lot of background and then give to Hearn and you can take to Hearn on your own. And I think you noticed that you can read the 17th century prose and it's accessible.